Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. We are looking at Colossians this week, chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. So, could anybody give us a little review of where we're up to so far? Yeah, sure. Um, So, Paul is writing this letter to the church in uh, Colossae um, because he's heard of some uh, false teaching that has crept into uh, the church there. So, he begins the letter by giving thanks to God about the faith of the Colossians. And then he goes on to talk about the supremacy of Christ over everything. Then, last week, we looked at how Jesus was the mystery of God made fully known to us. Great. Thanks, Juliet. Now, any ideas of how we would structure this passage? Yeah, I didn't find it the easiest to sort of separate out, but I think that's because the whole thing's really great. Not that any part of the Bible isn't, but it was kind of one continuous thought, I think. But um, I ended up splitting it verses 6 to 8, then 9 to 12, and then 13 to 15. But I also think you could probably do it 6 to 8, and then just the whole of the rest of that passage. And the reason I split it 6 to 8 is because 6 starts with Christ, and then 8 ends with Christ. It's like that bookend bit. So it just seemed a natural break. So I think some people would say that that one of the key themes in Colossians is this idea of Um, keeping going and maturing in Christ and I think we see that in verses six and seven quite a lot so what do you think those verses teach us ladies about how to keep going as Christians the key here is isn't it it's the first instruction is to walk in Jesus because of who Jesus is because verse six starts with therefore so you have to look at the section before because of Jesus being who he is and Um, because of the stewardship we have and because of who he is we should walk in him and I don't know what you guys thought as you were looking at this but I was like okay but what does that actually mean yeah I don't know what you guys came up with as you were thinking about what walk in him actually meant the thing that struck me was it was as you've received Jesus Christ the Lord and so I the thing that struck me about what that meant was to walk in him is to walk in submission to his lordship isn't it and actually that's hard isn't it for us because we like to be the lord and the master of our own lives and so i part of that for me was each day remembering that jesus is lord that he's the boss and that i am under his authority and almost the freedom that comes with that when we think about that rightly that because we don't have to make those decisions but we submit to his good rule so that part of the walking in him is under his good rule, I think. This bit of verses six and seven reminded me a bit of Psalm 1 talking about the tree mm. that is planted next to streams of living water. And it kind of reminded me of how, yeah, as Christians, we're rooted in Jesus. So we're building our roots down deep into him. And that's what keeps us as Christians built up in him um, from him, we kind of grow um, and we're strengthened in the faith as we were taught. And then we overflow with thankfulness. And for me, that kind of was a picture of like the blossom, our kind of, you know, fruit that comes from being uh, rooted and built up in him. Yeah. It really reminded me of Psalm one 
I suppose if you put the two things together, the walking with him and then being rooted and built up, it's making sure that you continue in Jesus and that you're not drawn away from the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. And where do you find that? You find that in his word. Something about roots is that you often don't see them, do you? Like roots go deep and they're in the soil and you don't, you know, the things that you do see is the fruit and like the strength of the tree and stuff like that. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's like the hidden day-to-day walk, isn't it, with Jesus? So yes, spending time with him, talking to him, spending time with others in his presence, worshipping. Those are kind of the hidden roots, aren't they, in a way which then affect everything else, you know, the fruit that we produce and the beautiful blossom of like thankfulness and stuff. That image of um, walking with him is like, it's very similar to uh, the language that's used in the Garden of Eden, isn't it, with Adam and Eve walking with God each day. That's a important thing for us to persevere to do. And yeah, we do that through prayer um, and also receiving through his word, don't we? And, and I guess like it's so much more secure building all our life on him compared to like building it elsewhere, isn't it? Because we're building our life on the rock rather than on um, sandy places. We're told time and time again, aren't we, that it's actually the simple things of the Christian life that provide continual and reliable spiritual food for growth. I think so often we tend to try and complicate matters (laughs) in some ways, but just like Juliet said, you know, like the word and prayer and it's almost like in our sinful hearts, we say, Lord, that's that's too simple for me. Mm. You know, it's not good enough for me. I need something more. I need, I don't know, I need this particular type of thing to feel connected to you and built up. I need to be in this particular environment to connect with you and be built up. But actually, time and time again, it is his word. It's prayer. It's being in his community. He's given us what we need for spiritual growth. It's whether or not we we think it's good enough, I guess, in some ways. Well, and they're not small things, are they? Because they totally change the way we think, don't they? And the way that we process the world. And so if we are rooted in that and we are feeding ourselves daily and regularly by praying and reading, it changes us, doesn't it? And it changes our perspective. So we can keep walking with him when life's hard. Um so yeah, they might not be the glamorous tools, but they are change they are life-changing, aren't they? And and I think it's it struck me that like Paul is writing this from prison. And it's like that's prison anywhere is not very glamorous. Like and yet he can not only is he being fed himself, he's actually feeding and encouraging brothers and sisters elsewhere to keep going in the faith. And just the joy that he's able to have in those dire circumstances is a great encouragement to us in whatever circumstances we face. Okay then, ladies, looking at verse 8, what are the different elements that we see in this verse of the dangerous teaching that is circulating? Well, it says, doesn't it, there's this hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition. And in the NIV, it says the elemental spiritual forces of this world, but apparently that can also be translated as basic principles of this world. 
when you read the word, uh, the bit that says elemental spiritual forces, it almost sounds a bit kind of new agey, doesn't it? Kind of ancient Eastern philosophies and stuff. Um, whereas as you go on in the letter, I think it's it's more related to circumcision and uh, observing certain festivals and basically the cross of Christ plus something else that makes you feel like you're doing something towards your salvation. I don't know what you guys thought. You know, it says philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Um, and then it carries on and says, and not according to Christ. So basically it's saying, guard yourself against things that have the stamp of man and not the stamp of God. And, and, and you know, even today, things are so sneaky. You know, philosophy itself and it in and of itself is quite good, you know, talking about things like that. But actually, that's the danger in it. It's not obviously sinful <laughs> to you know, when you start on these things, it's not obviously s- sinful. And actually, when you, t- I'm sure when they talk in those days when they were talking with Greeks and other people about philosophy, it sounded sort of highly intelligent, high sounding, you know, it probably made them feel and look quite good within the community. But there are, I'm sure, sh- but there are so many half truths or absolute um, lies in philosophy that could sound like they work with the with God's truth but they actually draw you away it's ironic isn't it that we're talking about philosophy as being the love of wisdom but Paul has already said in this letter all wisdom and understanding is found in Christ so Mm. why on earth are we looking elsewhere another Mm. thing that I read about this verse was that the whole verse the like the language in the Greek has this sense of being cheated and of being robbed and so the false teachers or the things that are drawing the Colossians away are promising things, but actually it's leading the Colossians away as prey. It's that sense mm. of, of robbing and plundering. And, and at the point where they receive Jesus, their goods and their treasure is in heaven. And that's where their treasure is. And yet the false teachers are basically trying to steal that from them. The things that are drawing them away from Christ is trying to steal their their treasures in heaven away from them because if they're believing in anything other than Jesus for their salvation, they're in serious, serious trouble and that treasure is no longer theirs. Yeah, I was going to say the consequences are kind of dire, aren't they? You know, we start with dabbling and then we end up captivated. Like it's easy to dabble and it doesn't feel dangerous until it's too late almost. Yeah, and when you're a slave, then you, you, it's very hard to be freed from that, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's too late. So let's look at the next few verses, mm. ladies. What in this passage is the antidote to this captivating false teaching? I guess straight away we see, we get reminded again of who Christ is. And he's the fullness of God in, in bodily form. And that from him... We have been given fullness in Christ. In Christ is repeated so many times here. In Christ, all the fullness of God lives. And we have been given fullness in Christ. And just before, in verse 6, we're being told to, to continue to live in him and be built up in him. And the sense of being in Christ is 
so incredible because it's given to us a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That we can have power to face false teaching. We can have power to be able to stand firm because that's where our roots are. And recognizing mm. as well that nothing else can fill or complete your spiritual well-being. You know, Jesus is the um, fullness of deity and you have been filled in him. That's it. You have everything you need for the fight. He's reminding us here, isn't he? You're already full. You're already circumcised in your heart. You're already buried and raised with Christ. Like It's just reminding ourselves, isn't it, who we are and what God has done for us. We were talking last week about how the gospel can be understood by a child. And, you know, we love the idea of moving on and being more knowledgeable and more wise and knowing all these wonderful mysteries. And I think that's partly probably what's tempting to the Colossians is that there's this teaching coming in, which puffs them up. And that is, you know, it's a good feeling, isn't it? But it's so not, it's, it's so temporary and not filling. Um, it says, I like that idea of it being hollow, like it says in verse eight, like if you think about the tree analogy, you just kind of, if your tree is hollow, then it's dead, isn't it? And that is nothing. Whereas we, we in Christ are these healthy, flourishing trees who can find joy in suffering and who can love each other sacrificially. Like it's just so different. Just being reminded of that is so important sometimes and reminding each other and just keeping on seeking after the simplicity of that rather than complicating everything. That whole idea of being filled by Jesus, I listened to a really helpful sermon where it talked about, you know, imagining Jesus as the ocean and actually we're just a cup, aren't we? And how much there is in the ocean in Jesus for us to be filled by and how it's such an easy thing for him to fill us with all his goodness and um yeah, just it was really helpful for me to think Jesus is so big and I'm so small and his he has so much fullness, doesn't he? That it's we can just be filled by him so long as we come to him and don't go to other places. But um mm. yeah, that's that's the danger, isn't it? That we go to other places rather than to the ocean. Sorry, Helen, go on. No, I was just gonna say, just as you were speaking, Dylan, I was listening to what you were saying. I was rereading verse nine you know verse verse nine almost knocks out any argument that you could have for anything else other than Jesus you know in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily like any possible mystic gnostic any other religion argument that you could throw at Christians or any other things that people who would say they're Christians and say but you also need to do this is blown out of the park by verse nine. It's such a small half sentence, and yet it it almost says everything. Yeah, I think that's probably why in chapter one he spent so long talking about the supremacy of Jesus, because this bit kind of just lightly uh, points back to that, doesn't it? Like, for in Christ, all the fullness of the de deity lives in bodily form. Like that really reminded me of that bit in chapter one, kind of from verse 15. Um, he's just kind of reiterating how important it is that we dwell on that and who Jesus is and know that deeply. 
um, like have our roots down in that truth. Yeah, and it, it's just so helpful for our hearts to remember, isn't it, that how big Jesus is compared to us. And so when we start dabbling in philosophies or human tradition and thinking we can add to that, just how ridiculous that is, because that whole, the scale of Jesus's big vastness compared to our smallness is a really helpful reminder. So how does the rest of the passage then, ladies, help us live in that fullness yeah, so I think it's helpful that we're reminded by these next verses that actually our sin is really serious. And in verse 13, it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, and also this written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. And and then it's contrasted by the power of God that who made us alive, not man or not our decision, but actually God made us alive with Christ and he's forgiven us all, like all our sins and nailed it all to the cross. And I feel like that that is a real encouragement to us when we see who are we standing before? We're standing before Jesus Christ, who's the fullness of God in bodily form. And yet he has made us clean and that we can approach his throne. That really gives us the ability to be set free from what we have and the ability to actually walk with him, going back to the Garden of Eden, that we can pray to God and that we can receive from him. And we've been given that because of what he's done. Yeah, being reminded of the heavy price of that is really challenging, isn't it? When we are tempted to dabble in things or be to seek after things that do draw our hearts away from the centrality of the cross, like Paul is just boom, like this is what it costs to take your sin away I love that in verse 14 having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away like I love that bit I underlined it in my bible and so therefore we need to live don't we like we are alive like we are free um kind of going back to the beginning of our passage verse 6 as we received him as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, you know, bearing fruit, overflowing with thankfulness. What do we have to be thankful for always, even in suffering? Well, what Jesus did on the cross, like he, the nails in his hands were a sign of us not being condemned anymore. And when he rose again, he triumphed over all of it. It says, doesn't it, in verse 15, he triumphed over these powers and authorities making a public spectacle of them um i just think we need to this is where our roots need to be right we need to live in passages like this like meditating and memorizing passages like this so that our roots can be strong because this is our lord this is our god yeah that verse 15 really uh really struck me um he disarmed the rulers and authorities wiser heads the mind say that he's probably talking about demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
you know, mm-hmm. this idea that when Jesus was hanging on the, gr- on the cross, the devil and his demons thought that they had won. And so they were mm-hmm. watching this in action and laughing and pointing and egging each other on and thinking how marvelous this is. But actually, when he rose again, Jesus turns the tables and they are shamed and despised and completely beaten. Um, you know, and therefore they are stripped of their ability to accuse us before God. I mean, they can't point at us and say, God, look how bad this person is. You know, the devil can't say, look what they did, they're mine. Um, that's not mm. that's not possible because Jesus put them to shame in such a public way. And and just living in light of that, like, it's not, therefore, I can do what I want. Nobody can judge me because God, you know, God's going to deal with all of that. We're free. <laughs> We're free. And the devil has been shamed and that, and that he has already been shamed. Such freedom and lack of fear. Like you said, Mary, even in the suffering and in the struggling, the devil can't laugh at you. You can't have, mm. the demons can't laugh at you because God has already beaten them. The thing mm. that I was really struck by, you know, Mary, you were saying earlier how helpful it is to meditate on passages like this, but it's that sense, isn't it, in this passage that we, with Jesus, died and were raised and that we there's a sense in which we join him in that process and I, yeah, I don't often mm. think about that and the fact that, um, yeah, there's a sense in which you, with him, did those things. And that, I just think that's a really helpful way to meditate on the the cross and the resurrection, isn't it? That we were with him in that, in some sense. That just helps me think about the cross more personally, that it wasn't just Jesus doing that, but that my sin and I'm united to him in that process. And so, yeah, it's all like, I guess coming up to Easter, it's really helpful, isn't it, to be meditating on that, yeah, all the time, but especially at this time of year, what Jesus did for us, but the fact that we are united to him in that in really Mm. precious ways. Mm. I think Mm. when we we dwell on that, um, it also disarms the things that hold on to us. Like it disarms all the things that take us away. Because when you hear about all that Christ has done, all that he has set you free to, so that you can live for him, then all the different things that we've been clinging to or looking for pleasure or comfort or just our reputation, all these things don't need to hold on to us. They don't have a, that's what disarm means, isn't it? They don't need to cling to us we can let them go yeah yeah I guess this passage is really helpful isn't it in challenging all those places in our hearts that we look for fullness that aren't Jesus and that can be the the work we do or yeah our reputation or how other people view us so I guess that would be a helpful place for us to land our hearts this this week wouldn't it in thinking Jesus is the place of fullness and nothing else and just praying this week that we allow him to fill us and that he disarms and deconstructs all those other things which are so small in comparison to him lovely to be with you ladies this week and we look forward to 
doing the next chapter with you all next week. Bye!